Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we ask that as we open your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word spoken, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, we will leave here uh, changed and transformed, prepared to uh, impact the world around us with the good news of Messiah Yeshua, and that we will faithfully hold in covenant relationship with you. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua our Messiah we pray, and everyone says, Amen. So this week we read Parsha Echev, uh, which comes from Deuteronomy 7, verses 12 through 11, 25. I know that every year as we move through Deuteronomy, I kind of hammer home the idea that this is Moses speaking to the second generation of Israel out of Egypt as they stand at the shores of the Jordan River, preparing to move into the promises of God in the promised land. Parsha Ekev is no different, but more so what it is is a full throttle reminder of the importance of maintaining covenant relationship with the Lord. The Parsha begins with Moses telling Israel, uh, uh, reminding Israel that God loves them and desires to bless them. The catch is the beginning line of the Parsha. Verse 12 of Deuteronomy 7 says, Then it will happen as a result of your listening to these ordinances when you keep and do them, that Adonai your God will keep with you the covenant uh, kindness that he swore to your fathers. And those words in Hebrew are really important because when he says results of your listening, the Hebrew word is Shema. As the Deuteronomy 6 4 says, when we say Shema Israel, Adonai Adonai Echad, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And it's, it's not a passive listening. It's not like, um, you know, when I talk to my kids and it goes in one ear and out the other, right? It's an active, responsive listening. When you Shema something, you're hearing it and you're responding to what you're hearing. Then he says you are to keep and do them. The, the Hebrew there is the word shamar. Uh, the root word is the word shamar, which means to guard, to protect, to keep, to put a hedge about it. Then Adonai goes on to say, and uh, if you will do so, then he will keep his covenant, his habrit, his covenant of kindness, chesed, uh, which is loving kindness. More specifically, I have a, a really close friend in Israel who makes it a point every time he sees me post something about uh, the, the chesed of Adonai, um, and often in English translations is translated as kindness or loving kindness, and every time I post something about it, he's really quick to go, but it can also mean, and maybe more so, merciful, that he's merciful to us. It's his mercy that he pours out. So he says, if we, will, uh, if we will listen and respond out of that listening, and if we will then guard and protect what he has given us, then he will keep his covenant, his habrit of chesed, his covenant of kindness, of mercy to us. Moses is telling Israel the all-important message that we must maintain covenant relationship with Adonai. That once we've entered the promised land, we are not to become complacent and comfortable and forget about him and all he's done for us. We must be careful not to, uh, we must be careful not to become susceptible to the idols of sin, uh, idols and sin of the people of Canaan. This includes Moses reminding Israel of the first set of tablets of the covenant that he destroyed over the sin of the Egel Hazahav, or the, the golden calf, and Moses having to go back up the mountain again to get the second set. He follows this reminder uh, with the following words from Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 14. So now, O Israel, what, what does Adonai your God require of you but to fear Adonai your God, to walk, or halach, to walk in his ways, and to love 
uh, or Ahav him, and to serve him, uh, to serve Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, to keep, or shamar again, that word guard, protect, to keep the mitzvot of Adonai, the commandments of Adonai, and his statutes that I am commanding you today for your own good. As we said last week, we are currently in the midst of the seven weeks of consolation, which comes immediately after Tisha B'Av, or the day on which both the first and second temples were destroyed because of the very fact that we failed to live up to this simple call of God, to be faithful to our covenant relationship with Him. During these seven weeks between Tisha B'Av and the High Holy Days, we read seven Haftorah Parshot, uh, ranging more or less from Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 66. This latter third of the book is all about God's promise of restoration, His promise of redemption, and His promise of salvation. And as I said last Shabbat, through the course of these seven weeks, I'm going to be focusing on the Haftorah Parsha and the message each week as opposed to the Torah Parsha. And this week's Haftorah is Isaiah 49.14 through 51.3 and breaches the beginning of Isaiah's suffering servant or the servant Messiah discourse. Uh, there are three key statements of comfort that we see uh, Isaiah using in this Haftorah Parsha. And we're going to look at each one of them a little closer as we move forward. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 49. We're going to begin with verse 14. Um, if you don't have your Bibles with you, grab your smartphone or your tablet or whatever's beside you, because odds are you have something electronic with the Word of God on it, and that works just as well. Isaiah 49 verse 14 says, But Zion said, Adonai has forsaken me. Adonai has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing baby or lack compassion for a child of her womb? Even if these forget, I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Keep in mind the subject matter of the prophecies of Isaiah. His ministry was before the Babylonian captivity and during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, uh, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Kings of Judah, uh, as we see in Isaiah 1.1, and it is believed that all 66, books, uh, 66 chapters of Isaiah were likely written... Uh, give or take about a hundred years before the Babylonian captivity. As such, Isaiah was a prophet used by God for the distinct purpose and goal of calling Israel back in Teshuvah, or repentance. The prophecies, thank you, the prophecies of Isaiah are uh, not only tell what will happen because of Israel's sin, but also relay that these events will happen if Israel does not return. So notice as we've said over and over again that Isaiah's primary purpose is not to condemn Israel. It is not to speak prophecy of uh, destruction and despair over the Jewish people, but it is to preach a message of a necessity for teshuvah, necessity for return, for repentance, so that these things do not happen. But as we see with the blessings and curses at the end of Deuteronomy, should we not return, these things are going to happen. The concept of this third major section of Isaiah is in essence dealing with the broken spirit of Israel that they will experience due to the Babylonian captivity, which will be caused by their sins. So where we find ourselves in Isaiah during the course of the seven weeks of consolation are specific to the future mentality and brokenness of the Jewish people post the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which was not yet a reality in Isaiah's time, but very much in the hearts and minds of the Jewish people every single year post Tisha B'Av today. Isaiah is telling our Jewish people that a time will come in which our sins will wreak such great havoc on our people and on the promised land that we will feel as though God has abandoned us, as though he has forsaken us. 
The day will come in which we will find ourselves dispersed among the nations, ejected from the promised land, and we will point fingers at Adonai, accusing him of being at fault, accusing him of having forgotten about his love for us, accusing him of rejecting his people. We will find ourselves so far removed from where God wants us to be that we will feel as though he has cast us aside, as though he no longer cares for us or loves us. But the reality is, and this is what Isaiah is saying here, that God has not forsaken us. He has not forgotten us, and he never could, and he never will. In fact, everything Isaiah is predicting is because of the fact that Israel had rejected Adonai. We forgot about and tossed aside our covenant relationship with him. Think about it. Throughout Kings and Chronicles, we read about king after king who did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord and who led Israel astray in their sins. They set up idolatrous temples, Asherah poles, high places, altars to the Baalim. They burned their children in the fires of Molech and so on. All the while, God was watching with the broken heart of a father, watching his children go against everything he's ever taught them. So when we accuse God of forsaking us or forgetting us, he says, verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing baby or lack compassion for a child of her womb? Even if these forget, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Here's the thing. Some hundred years later, give or take after Isaiah's ministry, his prophecy of the Babylonian captivity and destruction of the Beit HaMikdash or the temple and Jerusalem come true. The, the whole purpose of Isaiah's ministry wasn't to condemn the Jewish people. It was meant as a divine wake-up call from our sins. After centuries of judges after judge and king after king leading Israel away from righteousness, God sends Isaiah with a proverbial smack across the back of the head to get us to wake up and make Teshuvah. The problem is, thousands of years later, we still haven't really caught on to the message Isaiah had to preach. We sin, we mess up, we find ourselves in a bind because we walked outside of the will of God and contrary to our covenant relationship with Him. And what is our first reaction when things get tough? God, how could you let this happen? How could you leave me out to dry? I've seen it a thousand times and I've been guilty of it probably just as many. Yet the whole time God is watching and listening to us and thinking, I told you this was a bad idea. I tried to stop you, but you were dead set on this path. You wouldn't listen to me. You wouldn't listen to the wise counsel I sent you, prophet after prophet after prophet in, I, in Israel's case. You wouldn't listen to the wise counsel I sent you. You couldn't get out of your own way, and now that you find yourself in this bind, you want to blame me? This reminds me of an old joke I've heard time and time again over and over in my life, and I'm sure most of you have. It goes something like this. A storm descends on a small town, and the downpour soon turns into a flood. As the waters rise, the local preacher kneels in prayer on the church porch. Surrounded by water, uh, by and by, one of the townsfolk come up to the street in a canoe. Better get in, preacher. The waters are rising fast. No, says the preacher. I have faith in the Lord. He will save me. Still the waters rise. Now the preacher is up to the, uh, on the balcony, wringing his hands in supplication when another guy zips up in a motorboat. Come on, preacher. We need to get you out of here. The levee's going to break any minute. Once again, the preacher is unmoved. I shall remain. The Lord will see me through. 
After a while, the levee breaks and the flood rushes over the church until only the steeple remains above water. The preacher is up there clinging to the cross when a helicopter descends out of the clouds and a state trooper calls down to him through a megaphone. Grab the ladder, preacher. This is your last chance. Once again, the preacher insists the Lord will deliver him. And predictably, he drowns. A pious man, the preacher, goes to heaven. After a while, he gets an interview with God and he asks the Almighty, Lord, I had unwavering faith in you. Why didn't you deliver me from that flood? God shakes his head. What did you want from me? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> See, we know the difference between right and wrong. Heck, we have the Bible right before us day in and day out, or at least we should. As followers of Messiah, we are filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, yet somehow we still find uh, a way to mess up over and over and over again. And just like what Isaiah predicts about Israel, we find ourselves wagging our finger at God over and over again, crying out with a pain-riddled scream, Adonai has forsaken me, Adonai has forgotten me. And his reply is the same as it has always been. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 says, Keep your lifestyle free from the love of money and content with what you have. For God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Quoting Deuteronomy 31, 6 through 8. So that with confidence we say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What will man do to me? From uh, quoting from Psalm 118, 6. As Lynn said during worship, Sin in our lives may make us feel forsaken as was the case for Israel. But Adonai has never and will never leave us or forsake us. So why don't we walk in, as Hebrews says, that confidence? Why don't we walk in the confidence that God is with us, that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us, that he will never forget us? Isaiah 49, verse 22, carrying on, says, Thus says Adonai Elohim, Look, I will lift my hand to the nations and raise my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons on their chest and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians, their princesses, your nurses. They will bow down to you with your, their face to the ground and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am Adonai. Those hoping in me will not be ashamed. Now, I want to pause here and I want to kind of veer off topic for just a second because the words that Isaiah uses here are, I believe, intentional. That God is speaking through him this particular line for a very intentional purpose. Verse 23 says, again, kings will be your guardians, their princesses, your nurses. Why do you think this is? Could it be because this is something in Israel's experience that they should be alert and aware of? This is a reminder of God's protection and that God will never leave us or forsake us. Could it be that this is a nod back to, an allusion back to Moses? who when Pharaoh wanted all of the sons of Israel killed, his parents put him in a basket in the water. And he was then uh, saved by Pharaoh's daughter. He was raised as Pharaoh's daughter's son, as Pharaoh's grandson himself. He was literally guarded by the king, and he was carried by the princess. He was guarded by the king and nursed, if you would, figuratively speaking, obviously his mom was his wet nurse, but he was guarded by the king and nursed by the princess by the, the, the daughter of Pharaoh, and he was raised, protected for freedom for Israel. The whole reason God protected him and kept him in that place was so that in the future he would be able to come back and bring freedom and deliverance to the nation of Israel. 
Sadly, we know the outcome of Israel's response to the prophecies of Isaiah. We know that the heart of the kings of Judah and thus the hearts of the Jewish people never fully turned back to Adonai. And the walls of Jerusalem and Beit HaMikdash or the temple were overrun by the Babylonians. But the heart of Isaiah was to see the Jewish people make Teshuvah, to, to return to repent to Adonai. He desired nothing more, and the Ruach HaKodesh ministering through him desired nothing more than to see the warnings of destruction come to nothing. He wanted Israel to make Teshuvah so that all of these warnings of the destruction would never come about. And if you don't believe that it was possible for that to occur, just go look at the story of Jonah and the Ninevites. Because the moment the Ninevites listened to Jonah and repented, God stayed their execution. And as I've told you before, it was because Jonah refused to stick around and actually disciple them that a hundred years later they had long turned their back on God again. And God destroyed them as we see through the prophet of Nahum that God ends up destroying Nineveh. And now there are no history remnants of the Ninevite people because Jonah the one that God sent to lead them to repentance didn't stick around. Instead, he climbed a hill because he wanted to see the fireworks. And then he got mad at God for not forsaking the people he promised he would not forsake. God yearned for Israel to finally get the picture and to turn back to him in faithfulness and covenant relationship. Yet, he knew good and well that they wouldn't and that the prophecies would have to come true. But even in the foretelling of destruction and mayhem that would ultimately ensue, there is still a promise of restoration and a promise of return. The Lord tells Israel over and over again, including in this Haftarah Parsha, that a time will come when we will find ourselves in the diaspora uh, and ask ourselves, how in the world did we get here? How did we let this come about? And when that day comes... We will turn back to him. We will cry out in repentance. We will be forgiven and we will be restored. The whole point to all of this is restoration. God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. He knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were going to sin. He knew Israel was going to sin. He knew you and I were going to sin. Yet his yearning has always been the same. His heart's yearning has always been restoration. Not just restoration of the promised land, which ultimately will happen in a very literal sense, but restoration of our hearts, restoration of our relationship with our Heavenly Father. And this is the promise we see here in Isaiah 49, a promise of restoration, a promise of renewal, both physical and spiritual. Remember, though, one of the primary relationship constructs that we see uh, represented uh, of Adonai and his people is that of a father and a child. This was something that really hit me once I became a father myself. I mean, the concept wasn't necessarily anything new. The father-child relationship is found throughout the Bible over and over again. But the reality of the relationship uh, of that specific type of relationship became so much more vibrant when I became a father myself. I read things like the book of Isaiah and I can sort of picture myself in the Lord's shoes, figuratively speaking, obviously. I can feel his pain at watching his children turn their backs on him and watching his children look everywhere but him for fulfillment and love and watching his children jealously uh, desire what everyone else has rather than what he was so gracious and loving to provide. I can feel his pain when I have to punish my children. I think of the thousands of times I've asked my kids to put their dishes in the sink when they're done with them, only to find them left on, uh, on the coffee table or on an armrest on the couch or on top of the dog's kennel and any of a hundred other places that are opposite of the sink. 
I think of how many times I've asked them to make sure their bicycles or scooters are put back in the garage when they're done playing with them, laying, uh, only to then find them later on uh, the next morning in the middle of the yard or laying across the sidewalk or uh, the other side of the property. We found them one day on somebody else's property too. I think about how many times I've had the same discussion. Well, let's be honest, argument with them about cleaning their rooms and then how we have to have that argument over and over and over again for the next seven hours or sometimes seven days before they finally get the job done i think about how i have to make threats of punishment trying to get them to do what i've asked them to do over and over again and they still haven't done it sometimes those threats are made multiple times sometimes i even modify those threats because just the thought of having to punish them at all breaks my heart then the time comes in which I have no other choice but to follow through with those threats. I have to break down and punish them. And it breaks my heart to watch them cry, to watch their hearts break. But I still have to follow through. I think about the times I've said the phrase, I absolutely hated hearing more than anything when I was a kid growing up. Yet somehow as a parent, I still find myself saying it. And how many of you know exactly what I'm about to say? This is going to hurt me way more than it's going to hurt you. And as a kid, every time I heard it, all I could think of is you are full of crap. There's no way that this spanking's about to hurt you more than me. It's just not possible. And then inevitably, once all is said and done and the restoration is complete and my kids are cuddled up in my arms apologizing and asking for forgiveness, I can almost hear God saying to me, now you have but a tiny taste of what I go through over and over again with you. But here's the thing. Ultimately, these words in Isaiah 49 about return and restoration, about the nations bringing Israel back, they did in fact come true. See, Isaiah doesn't just prophesy about the Babylonian captivity, but he also prophesies about Cyrus returning the Jewish people back to Israel and providing for their rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But it isn't just about a physical restoration either. I believe Isaiah's words here are in connection to a spiritual restoration, a spiritual revival of the Jewish people as well. We read in Romans 11, beginning with verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he knew beforehand. Or do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Adonai, they have killed your prophets, they have destroyed your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in the same way, also at this present time, there has come to be a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by, by grace, it is no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but the elect obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes not to see and ears not to hear until this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they do not see and bend their back continually. And then verse 11, I say them, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their false steps, speaking of the Jewish people and Messiah, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Why? To provoke Israel to jealousy. Now, if their transgressions lead to the riches of the world and their lost riches for the Gentiles, then how much more their fullness, 
But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Insofar as I am an emissary to the Gentiles, I spotlight my ministry. Uh, if somehow I might provoke to jealousy my own flesh and blood and save some of them. For if their rejection leads to reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? So you've got to understand that promise that we would be protected in the king's household, that the nations would bring us back and that they would carry our sons on their chest and so on and so forth. That promise was not just about what was going to happen through Cyrus and Darius and so on moving forward. That promise was also about the reality of the nations being brought into the body of Messiah who would also be reaching the Jewish people, rather should be reaching the Jewish people, to see them come back to their God leading our people in jealousy back to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the promised Messiah of Israel. We go on in Isaiah 50, verse 4. Adonai Elohim has given me the tongue of the learned that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. He awakened me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to give heed as a disciple. Adonai Elohim has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those pulling out my beard. I did not hide my face from humiliation and spitting, for Adonai Elohim will help me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I set my face like flint, and I know what I will, that I will not be ashamed. The one who vindicates me is near. Who will accuse me? Let us stand up to each other. Who is my adversary? Let him confront me. See, Adonai Elohim will help me. Who is he who would condemn me? As I said at the onset of this message, Isaiah 50 brings about the beginning of the suffering servant discourse, which ultimately runs through Isaiah 54. These are such powerful words of prophecy as they speak directly to and virtually verbatim to the gospel message of Messiah's offering his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And here's the reality of it all. I talked about the father-child concept found throughout Scripture in reference to our relationship with God. I mentioned the dreaded phrase we'd hear from our parents saying, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. And God takes this whole idea to a whole other level. See, our Jewish people's banishment from the promised land was but a temporary punishment. God's intention was always to bring us back, and he says this over and over again. And in that temporary correction, we would return back to him in faithfulness. Well, temporarily, that is. But God knew that it was going to take something far greater to bring about the correction that was truly needed in order to bring about a legitimate and permanent teshuvah, or repentance. He knew that he was going to have to remove in the spiritual, move in the spiritual realm in order to bring about a perfect restoration for his fallen creation. Enter Yeshua, the suffering servant. Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, the son of Joseph. God robed in flesh, 100% man, 100% God who took the punishment and suffering rightly due us because of our sins, very literally on his own back, so that we could be restored to him, so that he could find, we could find salvation and freedom from sin in him. So when our Heavenly Father says, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you, he means it. Not only does he mean it, but he has been telling us of the prophetic reality of his restoration available for us since the fall of Adam and Chava, of Adam and Eve. Truth is, we can see the promise of true salvation in Yeshua Mashiach throughout the Tanakh over and over and over again. There isn't a single book in the Tanakh in which God is not revealing His eternal love and promise of salvation to us. 
Honestly, the closest I can fathom to even remotely understanding the depth of God's sacrificial love for us, His fatherly love for me, is literally putting my li- myself, my own life in harm's way for my children. And don't get me wrong, I would in a heartbeat. I would jump in front of a car to protect them. I would dive into any body of water to protect them. I'd get between them and any means of danger they, find, they may find themselves in in order to physically shield them from any sort of pain or consequence I possibly could. But although on some level I can conceive sacrificial love, I can't fathom the true depth of what God has sacrificially done for us. With my kids, I'm talking here and now physical harm and consequence that I would do whatever I could to protect them from. But with our Heavenly Father, we're talking about eternal consequence. We're talking about a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. The one who believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe has been condemned already, because he has not put his trust in the name of the one and only Ben Elohim, the Son of God. Adonai gave His one and only Son upon the cross, us that we may have etern- life eternal and here's the kicker that life eternal begins the moment we accept salvation in Yeshua we may be living in the temporal we may be living and experiencing a fading existence in the world as we know it but we are alive in Messiah we are able to tap into the life eternal in the indwelling of the Ruach HaKodesh the Holy Spirit and through this life eternal we are called not unlike Isaiah to boldly proclaim the message of Teshuvah the message of salvation and restoration to the entire world as Roman says to the Jew first and also to the Gentile as I prepare to close I want to go ahead and call our worship team back to the Bema and have them go ahead and, uh, and get ready to lead us in worship again in a moment Isaiah takes this conversation of our Heavenly Father's sacrificial love for us one step further with Isaiah 50 verse 10 who among you fears Adonai who hears the voice of his servant who walks in darkness and has no light let him trust in the name of Adonai and lean on his God We live in a dark world. All around us is darkness and despair. Isaiah knew about this. As a matter of fact, much like you and I, Isaiah was called to bring light into the dark world. God says through Isaiah that if we fear Adonai, if we hear the voice of his uh, servant, Yeshua, then we are to trust in Hashem Ladonai. We We are to trust in the name of the Lord and lean on him. And in him we will find light. Through Messiah Yeshua, we will be filled with His light and be made a light in this dark world. John 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and apart from Him, nothing has made, nothing was made that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overpowered it. As children of our Heavenly Father, bought by the blood of the Lamb, we have the light of Messiah. We must take on the call God gave to Isaiah and to bring the light of Messiah to the dark world around us. If we remain rooted in Messiah, if we remain faithful in covenant relationship with Him, the darkness will not overtake the light. It cannot overtake His light. 
we stand here today as a Messianic Jewish synagogue, both Jew and Gentile alike, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. As a Jewish believer, through the sacrificial love of our Heavenly Father, I have been restored and renewed. I have found salvation. I have made teshuvah, uh, and I am restored in the promises and blessings that go along with it. I am restored in the call that Isaiah says the Jewish people have to be a light to the world. As a believer from the nations, through the sacrificial love of our Heavenly Father, you have been restored and renewed. You have found salvation. You have made teshuvah, and you are restored in the promises and blessings that go along with that. And as Paul says, you are drawn into the body of Messiah, into the commonwealth of Israel, to drive the Jew to jealousy for his own God. God's promise to never leave us or forsake us still remains true, and he is faithful to it. His promise to, uh, to use the nations to bring the Jewish people home in Teshuvah is still true to this day, and we see it all around us. Over the past 2,000 years, millions of Jewish people have come to faith in the promised Messiah of Israel because of the salvational experience of those from the nations. As the world around us gets darker and darker, we must press into the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and shine the light of Messiah that uh, much, much more intensely. Because the world needs Him now more than ever. And we have a duty and a responsibility to make disciples of all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, even until the moment we see Yeshua's feet touch down on the Mount of Olives. So let's go to work being the light. Let's get to work calling the world to Teshuvah. And the mantle of Isaiah. Avarachimim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, we thank you that you are gracious and loving, that you are constantly pouring out your mercy upon us. Father, we thank you that in spite of our many, many mistakes, time and time again, that you love us and care for us, that you yearn for relationship with us, that you are constantly drawing us back and calling us back into Shuvah and repentance to you. Father, I pray that uh, as we prepare to leave this place today, that every word that you have spoken through Isaiah, every word that you have spoken through Messiah, every word that you have spoken throughout the word of God from Genesis through Revelation will take a hold in our hearts. And Father, we will be willing not only to make Teshuvah and to walk and live in Teshuvah, but that we will be willing to carry the light of Messiah into the dark world, into every crevice of the world around us so that every person we come into contact with may hear the message of the cry of your heart for your creation, for your children to make teshuvah, to return back to you and to avoid the reality of an eternal death, but instead to live in life eternal in your midst. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen and Amen.